0: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
0: Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Yeah, we're broadcasting live from the offices of Natixis Investment Managers here in the back bay of Boston. Got a great view. It's a beautiful day here. Looking at the markets, obviously they've been whipsawed by trade. It's all about trade. It seems to move every single day. The market's now focused on December 15th when new U.S. tariffs on Chinese imports are scheduled to take effect. To get a sense of what this means near term, we welcome David Lafferty. He's the chief market strategist for Natixis Investment Managers. And get this, they have $1 trillion under management. So I think they have a feel for the market. So, David, thanks so much for having us here at your offices. We appreciate it. we got a little audience here, people coming here to see what you have to say. So how do you guys... no pressure. Yeah, no pressure, no pressure. How do you guys deal with the volatility that is, as we learned from an earlier guest, is hard to measure, almost impossible to measure, and that is about trade and
2: tweets about trade and all that type of stuff. How do you guys position
0: around the uncertainty
2: of trade? Well, I think we have a few hallmarks we try to fall back on, broadly speaking, across our money managers. Uh, One is a bit longer horizon. Uh, You know, it doesn't matter what the news is, but if you take a little bit longer horizon, a lot of this stuff turns out to be daily news, Uh, particularly around trade. trade, You get a tweet at 8 in the morning in terms of how a portfolio is positioned, that could be stale by 8.30 in the morning. So we don't want our clients running around making a lot of tactical changes. And I also think we think a lot about valuation. So we know markets move a lot, uh, but we do think about where are the cheap assets, where are the opportunities, what's expensive. And that's a bit longer horizon kind of idea. So it's not that we don't kind of follow the, the ebbs and flows of the market. Uh, But we don't want to take every daily little tick in the markets too, too seriously. And I think that's a trend that you'd see across a lot of uh, our products and our money managers.
1: A lot of the valuation today, the elevated valuation in equities, has been predicated on this ongoing easing and easier cycle of central banks around the world. And we've seen that globally central banks have eased the most this year uh, since the financial crisis Do you think that the extra boost that that has given equity valuations can persist into 2020?
2: Uh, I don't. I've been skeptical. And now, frankly, I've been wrong about that. We wrote about this earlier last year. I think the effect, uh, at least in the real economy, has begun to clearly fade. I don't think you get nearly as much credit impetus when you go from very low rates to even lower rates. Uh, You know, if you're a CEO, if you're in the C-suite and you didn't borrow last year at absurdly low rates... Why are you going to borrow this year at even more absurdly low rates? So I think the credit impetus begins to fail. Uh, And I also think in terms of portfolio effect, the idea that buying all these assets will gradually raise valuations, create kind of a wealth effect. People have to remember that most of the QE was done, at least in the U.S., was done when the S&P was at 12, 13 times earnings. We're at 19 times. The European Central Bank's QE policy was was largely implemented when we were at 10 or 11 times earnings. So you get a bump. But I think that market effect is fading as time goes by. Although
1: some people say that the recent strength that we've seen in equities has been driven largely by this $300 billion expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. Do you buy that?
2: Uh, I don't think so. I really think it's been... Uh, so, so first of all, if you if you look at the full bull market, I really, and when I say bull market, I mean off the December 24th lows, you know, we're up uh, 28% year to date and about 30, 31 off the, off the Christmas Eve lows last year. Uh, I, I view the first 25% of that as just getting back the losses that we had in, in the fourth quarter. Everybody looks at this year uh, as if it's this massive bull market, and that's really an accident of the calendar, which really happened is the market basically between January 1st and about April 30th rallied huge. And since then, we're up about five or 6%. It's been a nice little run, but it's not like the market is skyrocketing. Excuse me, it's really just getting back a lot of what was lost earlier. So I think there is a monetary effect there, but it's probably still the spillover from the Fed's 180. It's not that people are looking at the term repo and thinking, uh, "Hey, term repo makes stocks a great buy." I don't think people are doing that kind of math.
0: Okay. Well, the math that people are doing now—it's uh, you know, early December, people are looking at their 2020 outlooks. Everybody on the streets publishing their 2020 outlooks. How are you guys positioned? for 2020 i'm just kind of thinking about risk are you a little bit more risk on or maybe a little bit more risk off
2: well i'll say a couple of things the first thing is uh i'm glad i'm down here doing this interview because i'm not Upstairs, staring at a blank page. Right. Uh, which is what I've been doing and trying to write my outlook for the last two weeks. <laughs> Will help you procrastinate <laughs> any time. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, and it's not that you know we you know people have asked us there's so much uncertainty. I think uncertainty is always with us. I don't see the obvious catalyst that we like to write about. We love to write about what central banks are doing or that the the pace of economic growth is radically changing. We don't see central banks doing a whole lot in the near term. We don't see the pace of global or U.S. growth changing a lot in the near term. Uh, we don't think valuations are exorbitant, but they're certainly not cheap. So all the hallmarks that I go back to when I try to wrote my Outlook uh, really aren't there.
1: All right. So given that in just about a minute, yeah. was your highest conviction going into 2020? So My so, like, uh, highest yeah. conviction yeah. is the blank page that yeah. I have yet to get back to. That is
2: high conviction on the blank page. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to what, what sort of Paul was asking, which is how do we think about risk and where, do, where does that sort of our conviction come from? Uh, my highest conviction is that while our base case is for stocks and bonds to sort of clip their coupons, I think you'll get your earnings growth and inequities, maybe not a lot of PE expansion. I, I'm concerned that the risk return trade-off isn't that favorable. When I think about whether we're wrong, maybe more, maybe the economy reignites how much upside is there. There's some, but not a ton but what if we're wrong and we go into recession given where valuations are? There's far more downside than there is to upside. So I don't like the trade-off, even though we're not bearish in any sense of the word.
1: David Lafferty, we're going to let you get back to your blank page in the uh, blinking cursor. I have seen it many a time before. David Lafferty, Senior Vice President and Chief Market Strategist at Natixis Investment Managers, uh, where we are in, in their Boston They're headquarters. Yep. They're hosting us right now with an audience of people all nodding along and giving you thumbs up. A couple people.
0: A, a great, no, that was good. A, was good. A great pantry here. I mean, it's almost Bloomberg-like. It's,
1: it's almost. <laughs> almost. No, really interesting, though. And, and honestly, uh, David's not alone when it comes to yep. uh, the sort of blank page. It, It's a hard time to try to get conviction. Exactly. We are broadcasting live from the Nantixas Investment Manager's Headquarters here in Boston for Sustainable Finance Week. Uh, back in New York, Amy Bantz joining us uh, and I'm so glad that she is because we really uh, can't overemphasize how much money has flooded into the venture capital space in particular through the likes of SoftBank but another a number of others too, leaving people wondering where are the opportunities. Amy Bance is Managing Director and Head of Funds at Comcast Ventures. Uh, Amy, you come at this from a really interesting vantage point, and that is the venture capital arm inside of a big corporation. How is that different from a standalone venture capital fund?
3: I I think the um, changes that we're making are very much driven by the changes in the market themselves. So as you mentioned, Lisa, there's so much money in the market. It really is giving entrepreneurs the luxury of choosing investors who bring more than dollars to the table, Um, And at corporate venture um, capital funds like Comcast, we're really taking advantage of that by leveraging our platform, the Comcast NBCU Sky platform, to create programs that support and help our young portfolio companies grow. And really in that way, it's turning the concept, the traditional concept of strategic capital on its head.
0: So it's interesting, Amy, that the public markets have really started paying, I think, more attention to what's going on in the venture and the private market, given some of the IPOs that came and did not come this year. I'm thinking Uber, Lyft, you know, and the ones that didn't come, WeWork. And really calling into question the valuations that the private market and the VC market is putting on some of these companies, i.e. mispricing them. Um, Is that just, do you think that's the case? And if so, is it just too much money chasing too few deals?
3: You know, I think there's a there's no question there's a lot of money out there um, and valuations, I agree, we agree, are extraordinarily high at that point. I do think there's opportunity in that for um, funds like Comcast Ventures. In some ways, it's forced us to go earlier. Um, which in turn has, you know, proven to be to our benefit because um, if we invest earlier at seed or at, um, you know, uh, at series in Series A, it allows us to get the equity position and potentially the board seats and the influence that um, we like to have in order to partner with and support our portfolio companies in the way that I just described through through special programs that leverage. You know who we are, um, and allow us to help and support them. That you know, in ways that 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 other funds can't.
1: So, given the fact that the media landscape, in particular, is undergoing such a dramatic transformation with the streaming side of the business, what types of startups are you targeting that could potentially uh, offer new technologies? It could even dovetail with Comcast's fundamental business.
3: Yeah. You know, Lisa, um, we actually have historically invested across a fairly wide spectrum of categories. So, yes, we do invest in media, um, although, uh, you know, and we have some very uh, successful companies there, including um, Vox and The Athletic um but um lately we've invested in a in a much broader spectrum um everything from b2c consumer brands to enterprise saas cybersecurity um and even some frontier tech as well um again because of who we are you know and and that our platform encompasses not just the nbc piece but um, also the comcast and sky piece it's really a rare company um, that we can't as as an enterprise support in some ways.
0: Amy, one of the things we learned um, or maybe just relearned with the WeWork situation is the importance of corporate governance, good corporate governance. Mm-hmm. How do you at Comcast Ventures view that as you consider investments?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question, Paul. You know, I, I think the pendulum is swinging back to good growth, not just growth at any cost, but good growth, sustainable growth, profitable growth. Um, And, you know, particularly coming into this year, 2020, which could prove to be a bumpy year, um, we are very focused on looking at companies who are mindful of that good growth mantra. Um, And we're talking to our existing portfolio companies about making sure that, you know, they have, you know, they have enough runway, they have enough capital to, you know, weather a storm if and when that storm comes
1: just real quick here uh about 30 seconds are you finding it harder to deploy your capital given how high valuations are
3: no um lisa as i mentioned earlier um actually because we've become more comfortable you know strategics historically have invested at later stages Um, in the last couple of years we really have focused on developing an early stage muscle Um, And, you know, because we're having success there, we're actually finding that with our sort of strategic platform behind us and because investors are looking for more than just money, we're seeing opportunities that um, we've never seen before. So we're excited about um, the place and stage in the market that we're currently playing.
0: Hey, Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, next time, Lisa and I will join you in the studio We're up in Boston today, but Amy Banz, thanks for joining us, Managing Director and Head of Funds at Comcast Ventures. Time to go to Bloomberg Opinion, and there's an interesting story out this morning. BlackRock's Mark Weissman, a senior executive, was terminated uh, today for failing to disclose a personal relationship with another employee at BlackRock to help us uh, get through this story. We welcome Sarah Green Carmichael. Uh, she covers uh, the financial services industry for Bloomberg Opinion, joins us in our Bloomberg and Interactive Broker Studio. So, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense of what we know so far about this story at BlackRock.
4: Well, we don't know very much. Uh, we know that Weissman is uh, said to have violated company policy, and that he has apologized for failing to disclose his relationship uh, to HR. Um, at the same time, um, you know he is married, so this is not like some other cases that we have heard where uh, there was a personal relationship that would otherwise have been <laughs> have been fine. Um, this was something that he was hiding, probably from a lot of people. So it's interesting because we've seen a number of reports recently
1: about consensual relationships between two people uh, leading to the firing or stepping down of an executive. And I'm wondering, are we just hearing more about this or is this a shift in policy uh, that is pervasive across Wall Street right now?
4: Companies are definitely taking a harder line on this, and it's something that HR departments uh On Wall Street and elsewhere are gonna really have to figure out and my concern at this point is that we seem to be lumping a lot of these different cases together Um, someone who's having a relationship at work with a colleague is different from someone who's having an extramarital affair with a colleague and both of those situations are very different than sexual harassment which is I think what a lot of the conversation around me Too really started a lot of these conversations So
1: what is the argument for terminating someone for having a relationship that's
4: consensual at work? Well, I think there's a couple of things here. One is that if an HR department has put in place a policy saying, we don't want you having relationships with colleagues at work, then you are violating company policy if you have one of those relationships. Um, And so I think it's the violation of that policy that then becomes the fireable offense. Um... And that's a case where you don't really want to have senior executives, you know, by violating rules they're asking other people to follow.
0: So, Sarah, on that front, do we have a sense of, you know, across corporate America, you know, what percentage of companies are just saying, you know, we just have a zero policy here, or just don't do it? Is that, do we know that and is it growing?
4: I don't know specifically what the number is, but it does seem to be growing from what I do know. I think more and more HR departments think, oh, well, the way to crack down on harassment, which is the problem, is just to ban sex from the workplace entirely, which I don't think, frankly, is realistic.
1: Yeah, and it also comes at a time uh, when there is a question about how to get more women into the workforce. Is one concern here, uh, a senior executive having a relationship with an underling and sort of some of the implications there. I mean, is that sort of the underpinning of uh, of, of, of potential exits here?
4: Yes, I think that was certainly at play in the case of Steve Easterbrook, who was ousted from McDonald's. because you know McDonald's had a policy that no supervisor could have a relationship with a direct report or someone lower than them on the corporate ladder. As the CEO, obviously everyone was was lower than than Easterbrook. So um, this is a case where I think well-intentioned HR departments are going to have to figure out how to handle this, um, and CEOs are going to have to figure out how to handle this. Clearly, a power differential can create all kinds of issues in a relationship. At the same time, you know many people do meet their spouse at work, and in many cases, companies are working to recruit power couples where they want both people to relocate uh, for top jobs. So this is something that's not going to go away.
0: Yeah, sir, it's interesting. This is obviously a BlackRock, a financial services company. Wall Street has typically been perceived as an area that is not conducive uh, to women. Is there any sense that certain industries maybe are doing a better job than others?
4: That's an interesting question. There are certainly some industries where women have managed to make better strides, and financial services remains one of the most male-dominated industries. Um, so I could certainly see that in this case, BlackRock might especially want to crack down on any violations of company policy that would seem to make um, you know, the workplace more hostile to women. It does not certainly help Mark Weissman in this case that his wife is also a top uh, BlackRock uh Executive and yeah, is the head that. of BlackRock Canada, um, Marsha Moffat.
1: Yeah, I was I was thinking uh, this has got to be. An awkward moment uh, for a lot of people at BlackRock. And uh, to be clear, Mark Wiseman was potentially a successor to CEO Larry Fink. So it leaves a lot of questions looming large, certainly for BlackRock in terms of leadership, if Larry Fink does step down. Uh, Sarah Green Carmichael, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Sarah Green Carmichael of Bloomberg Opinion. We are broadcasting live from the Natixis Investment Managers Headquarters here in Boston for Sustainable Finance Week, and we are so lucky uh, to have with us Catherine Kaminsky, Dr. Catherine Kaminsky, Chief Research Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Alpha Simplex Group, which is uh, the the firm founded by Dr. Andrew Lowe and focuses on understanding risk and mitigating it going forward. Uh, So nice to be here. Uh, Dr. Kaminsky, I'm wondering from your perspective, what the biggest risk is heading into 2020 the risk of a sell-off in rates or the sell-off in uh credit or the concept of credit deterioration
5: great to be here lisa um to be honest you know as we know uh we've been in an environment where we've seen rates go very very low um i'd say that you know credit is obviously an issue but we're paying a lot of attention to rates and what can happen if they go up um, and, or if we have a situation where, um, we've already seen some instances that we might've hit the bottom in rates. And I think people are a little concerned about how that might go.
1: Um, haven't people been worried about rising rates for approximately I know. 10 years and it's never <laughs> I <know>. happened?
5: <laughs> I know. I mean, I've been worried about it for, actually, we don't worry about it because we're very dynamic in how we trade the markets and we can go short, um, in fixed income and we, Are worried about a lot of individuals who really can't and who've bought a lot of bonds and this year um, people have definitely uh, you know jumped into even more fixed income and it's unclear um, how much more there is to go to protect you if we have any challenges Um,
0: so it's interesting i'm looking at uh, your firm Uh, you employ a proprietary risk control technology i think it's called adaptive volatility management what is that in layman's terms? And I stress layman's Ooh. terms. <laughs> what, <laughs> so, do you, what do you try to do there?
5: So the thing is, is if you think about risk, there's several key ways to think about risk. There's things you can measure and things that you can actually know. And then there's the things that you can't know. What we try to do is do the best that we can to understand what types of risks we can measure, quantify and understand, and then use those um, what we insights that we gain from measuring these risks to try and balance our portfolios over time. So as things change, we try to use information from markets to measure that volatility, to measure where things are moving so that we can adapt to
1: things. What's the most visible forward pocket that you can measure risk?
5: So, I mean, for us, it's not necessarily purely just a forecast of risk. It's also about understanding relative risk between different assets and quantifying it, but also understanding how much of that is actually reliable. Because backward looking, it's very easy to have a very precise measure, but you need to actually more think about in relative terms, which risks seem more viable than than others going forward.
0: What are the risks that keep you up at night that you can't quantify? Is it a Twitter? <laughs> or is it uh, <laughs> is it macro global trade? What are the things that solar flares? Solar flares. Yeah.
5: So the things that really keep me up at night are risks that have decorrelation effects. Now what does that mean? Decorrelation effects means that a lot of the relationships that we have seen and things that are in the data, things that people understand, things that people believe revert. So Unfortunately, Twitter uh, seems to be doing that, um, but so we worry a lot about how how those type of events have the ability to change relationships that we think work. Um, so as an example, maybe because that sounds yep. very yes. conceptual, um, a simple example would be Monday. Uh, sorry, (laughs) still very fresh. Um, But if you look at a day like Monday, we saw uh, equity markets sell off, we saw bond markets sell off at the same time, and also the US dollar. That type of relationship is something that has been very strong and stable over the last two years. So all of us who are measuring risk and trying to understand relationships, we're exposed to that measurement risk that, you know, the world changes and and that's a decorrelation um, effect. And so, any of these type of short bursts of, you know, change in sentiment and and threats or, or, you know, tariff arguments, they scare people. And sometimes they have very adverse um, and unintuitive uh, reactions in the markets.
1: So is the goal for you to not lose money or is it to make bigger returns than others?
5: So the goal for us is that, you know, it turns out mathematically that Estimating returns and forecasting returns is a lot harder than measuring risk. So one of the things we try to do is understand risk-reward trade-off. So we're trying to understand how much opportunity there is relative to what types of risk you can measure, as well as how do these different risk return
1: profiles compare across different assets. What is the time frame for each trade? In other words, are these trades for a month, two months, fewer? So
5: our, our trading is actually a continuous process. Every day we're looking mathematically at and measuring the markets to try and determine what that risk reward trade-off of each of these different markets that we trade. So from bonds to um, equities to commodities, um, we're trying to look at what is the forward-looking risk-reward trade-off and how do we balance those things. So the trading is actually, when you're trading in the futures markets in particular, we're following all of these moves pretty, um, pretty, um, pretty quickly in some sense. Not high frequency, but definitely faster than um, someone who's a long-term investor.
0: Dr. Katherine Kaminsky, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you joining us here. Katherine is a chief research strategist and portfolio manager for Alpha Simplex Group, joining us here at the offices of Natixis in the beautiful Back Bay of Boston. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.